Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, Senior Tax Trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Neil Jones, Director of Tax Banter, to have a yak about the budget and the budget in reply by the opposition leader. Neil, welcome back to Tax Yak. Thanks, Robin. And yeah, a big week, uh, a bit earlier than normal. You know, it's unusual to have a budget in April. So, The some... last time we had a budget that was not in May it was 1994. Yeah, so it's well, been a long time. It has. And so uh, a long week. And uh, I look forward to discussing with you the, both the government's agenda and the reply by the opposition. All right. So look, what we might kick off with is just to set the scene, what does the budget look like and some terminology so that people understand uh, the the terminology we are using. Whenever we talk about the budget in accounting terms, it's basically just the profit or the loss. But whenever the media talks about the budget, they refer to surpluses and deficits. When the government talks about the budget, they refer to the underlying cash position. So in our budget summaries and in publications you'll see around the traps talking about the budget, it's the underlying cash position that is the, uh, the relevant figure. Now, the government has predicted that for 1920, there will be, in fact, a surplus, a predicted surplus of $7.1 billion. We're been, back in the black, Robin. Are we back in the black or we're forecast to be back well, in the we're black? We're predicting to be back in the black. Yes, true. A subtle distinction, but yeah, we're not there yet. And we won't know until September next year, which will be the final outcome. Now, I've been tracking these figures, Neil, since about uh, 2002, so it gives me an idea of uh, whether the government's on track or not with their budgets. And according to the figures I've been running, the last time the government of the day delivered a budget surplus was 2007-8. That's pre-GFC. It is, and that's right. And uh, um, it's good to make plans and planning over the next four years to bring in over $45 billion in surpluses, which will allow the government to perhaps meet their agenda and uh, pay off some of our credit card bills. Question for you. When Costello in 2006 announced to the nation he paid off the last dollar of debt and we were there for interest free, that was a good moment for the country. We went through the GFC, we went back into debt. The current debt is uh, sitting at over $550 billion. It's predicted to, in fact, go to $558 billion for 1920. We've got an interest bill of more than a billion dollars a month. So if we've got a debt of that level, having a surplus of $7 billion is not going to get us very far. A planned surplus, but even 45. But uh, as Josh Frydenberg said in his initial and first budget, he could be a first and only budget deliverer, but in his first budget he did have a plan that we would be debt-free or our net debt position would be zeroed out at 2030. So it is a long haul. And, uh, you know, it's good to plan that. I think as a nation, we're almost at our maximum credit card limit. And I think the $600 billion is the, uh, the borrowing limit. And we're, as you say, 550 into that. So you don't want to go much further. So comments on, and your observations about where we're sitting. We've got the election coming up in a matter of weeks. In fact, it's expected that the Prime Minister today or even over the weekend is going to drive down to the Governor-General's house and uh, arrange for the issue of the writs. Yeah, I think... Uh, we are far, the, the election will take place shortly, and uh, as we're recording this today, it's not that far out. But I think you're looking at the dynamic at the moment, and uh, the government's delivering a budget where they've got a new prime minister, a new treasurer. We're going to an election. I'm not sure that anyone in the nation expected the government to sort of steer the course for you know the 
the advancement of the nation as a whole. So, you know, it was not going to be a an innovation agenda, a, um, a, a broad sweeping statement about where we need to take this country in terms of economic performance or even in terms of uh, lifestyle. And uh, What more could we have expected out of the budget? Yeah, well, uh, well, it would have been nice to set this, you know, a... a a framework into where we're heading, but I don't think anyone really expected that to happen given that dynamic. So I think what the government's general thrust of the budget message is we're back, getting back into black, so we're, we've got good economic management, we're returning to surplus, we've got a plan to pay off our debt, we're giving you a little bit of an election treat with some changes to the tax scales and, and uh, tax positions, for, particularly for low and middle income earners. So I think what the government's trying to spread as a message is we're in charge, we've got a steady hand on the wheel, and you'd be mad to change the captain at this time of the journey. So I think that was the the, the, the take I got out of the Morrison and Frydenberg's first budget. Look, I put a, a LinkedIn post up on Tuesday evening and the next morning I came back to it thinking, I don't feel like I've got enough in this post. There don't seem to be enough measures that are noteworthy. Now, we filled up on a 40-page paper in our summary with the various measures, but when you go through all of them, most of them don't have a lot of substance. They're not crucial tax measures. Yeah, it wasn't a usual budget in that regard that we had a, a raft of tax changes, whether they be brought on by behaviours in the economy to close down loopholes. Uh, I think it, the budget on Tuesday night said as much about what it did say as what it didn't say with all of the unfinished items on the government's agenda. And the most classic of those is Division 7A and you know private companies and their transactions with their shareholders and associates of shareholders. So all we got was another deferral, so another 12-month hiatus until we know what actually is going to happen with the Division 7A provisions. Well, let's talk about this properly because this was first touted back in 2012 when the then Labor government commissioned the review by the Board of Taxation. Now, we didn't get a formal response following the Board's report until the 2016 budget, and it was going to be a 1 July 18 start date. And then in the 2018 budget, they deferred it by 12 months to 1 July 2019. Now, I predicted back on Monday that the only sensible outcome was going to be a further deferral because we've seen no draft legislation, we've seen no bills, so how could you start measures in less than three months? Not only no legislation, but a consultation paper put out by Treasury that I have to say is widely condemned for its lack of commerciality and perhaps um, some absurd concepts. Um, so I don't think anyone expected that the Div 7A reforms would be sanctioned and, and the, you know, committed to by 1 July 19. It's just not possible. Uh, so kicking that and deferring it for another 12 months was the obvious thing to happen. I think we're all committed to that was going to be the outcome. But So we've got to wait a bit longer. Look, I think there are two positives. One, it does give them more time to develop the policy and make sure there's further consultation. But there was also a reference in the budget papers to appropriate transitional arrangements. And maybe that will uh, open an opportunity to revisit what Treasury was putting forward in its discussion paper last October. And instead of just treating all 25-year loans automatically as new 10-year loans, maybe there are going to be some uh, softer approaches to that. Not just the 25 moving to a 10-year environment, but you know the, the, the horrendous thing that's still been hanging over people's heads from over 22 years now, and that's your old 108 loans or pre-4th of December 97 debit loans. You know. A lot of those haven't moved at all, and we're nearly over 20 years down the road. Now, uh, I'm a pragmatic sort of person, and I think we've always known there's got to be a reckoning at some stage. You know, Those people that borrow money, they know that they've got to pay them back. 
these people have had a free kick, if you like, for over 20 years. Interest-free. Interest-free, repayable on demand, but still a loan. So I think we've always known there's a reckoning coming. It's just that everyone's sort of put their head in the sand and, and haven't addressed it. Now, the Board of Taxation's report on reforming Div 7A made it clear, you know, just cut to the chase, call it a loan and start paying it back. Uh, the Treasury consultation paper suggested, look, we'll give you a couple of years to do something, but if you haven't done it and it's still sitting there in two years' time, we'll then bring it into the interest and principal arrangement. So I think we've always known something has to happen. Um, you can't keep saying nothing's going to happen. It, it, it is a loan. You're supposed to pay them back, so there's got to be a day of reckoning. So um, what we found out this week is that that day has been pushed back for another, at least another year until we know what happens. And it also pushes back the uncertainty on the quarantined pre-2009 UPEs because that was still a question mark in the discussion well, the, paper. Again, the Treasury consultation paper dodged a bullet. They didn't even make any comments other than say, what do you reckon should happen to them? So we're left completely in the dark. So um, I just think we're, we're basically in a holding pattern again, you know, where we've put all the airplanes in an order and we've uh, just said, hang up there for a while longer and do your circling and we'll tell you where you're going to land in a little while. Look, it was also interesting some comments that the Assistant Treasurer Stuart Robert made recently and to paraphrase he was saying my thinking is uh, somewhat more aligned with what the ATO's position is rather than Treasury's which is suggesting that there may be a difference between what Treasury and the ATO are thinking. I think most as, as we travel around the country talking to people about the Treasury consultation paper it was it did have some absurdities in it you know there were just not not commercial outcomes I mean to charge people interest on an opening balance of a loan and ignoring any repayments of the principal doesn't make a lot of commercial sense. So. Well, there isn't a bank in the world that charges you interest on an amount you don't owe anymore. Correct. And the concept of distributable surplus needs a lot of work. The government or tre Treasury's idea that we just abandon that as a concept, you know, and if you take money out of your company, it must have been there to take so we can tax you on it. Plus the 14-year proposed mm. amendment period. And we could go on and on, but, yep. you know, let's delay this conversation for a later time. All right. Let's move on to the personal tax cuts. Um, obviously a major uh, policy platform for the coalition, and we can uh, make some comments about what the opposition's doing with this as well. Just to set the scene for everybody, there was legislation enacted last year that brought in three different stages of tax cuts. Now, the 1 July 2018 tax cuts are already in place, and that had the effect of increasing the $87,000 threshold up to $90,000. This is the upper end of the 32.5% tax rate. But stages two and three were also legislated. So if they are going to change in the future, they would need to re-legislate over the top of that. And those changes to take effect from 1 July 2022 is to lift the $37,000 threshold up to $41,000 and the $90,000 threshold up to $120,000. That's what we've already got. This is what we've legislated. And Correct. then the third stage, 2024, would actually remove the 37% tax bracket altogether, flatten it out by lifting the $120,000 threshold up to $200,000. So that's what's in place now. What did the government say on Tuesday night and what do they want to do about it? this? Well, you say major development, but the seven-year plan already enacted was just tweaked a little bit. So uh, the low and middle income tax offset, which is, you know, it's not a cash payment by the government. It's, it's collected around lodgement day. So when you put your return in, there's a deduction in your tax bill by the tax offset. So it doesn't actually physically cost them cash. It does reduce the tax collected but it's not a cash payment so smart from that perspective 
But the government has increased what was already legislated or planned to increase what was already legislated, so a little bit more. So, as I said, you know, we're pretty well in a holding pattern. Uh, here's a bit of a sweetener. We'll top it up a little bit, but not yet. So you still have to wait to get the benefit of the announcement on Tuesday night. So a little bit of movement in structural change, and that's your brackets and rates. So you just mentioned the 41,000. On Tuesday, Josh Frydenberg suggested that will go up to 45,000 from July 22. And then the 32.5% rate would reduce to 30. So they are structural and permanent changes you to our tax scales. You end up with this mega tax bracket. So by 2024, if the coalition's policy proceeds, you'd end up with a bracket running from 45,000 right through to 200,000. On the 30% rate, bracket creep would almost become a thing of the past because it would allow people to earn a little bit more income, get a pay rise, without that artificial uh, moving into another tax bracket that dissuades people from taking on additional income. The flatter your bracket, your structures, that's true, but you still have those at the cusp of 200,000. So sure. you still have that you know, disincentive, I suppose, to go beyond 200,000 because you do move to that top marginal rate of tax. Can you make some comments on the low middle income tax offset? So this is for the, the income earners running from the, the low income earners right through to roughly $125,000. Well, it's complicated. Um, I don't want to go through chapter and verse, but essentially when you're on a low income, you get a benefit and the government's going to jump that up from 200 bucks to $255. Now that's at $37,000 level. Then for every dollar over that you earn, you get start to get a bit more. And so it increases and increases. And when you hit 48,000 as your level of income, you'll get the maximum 1,080 as proposed. Now in that bracket, from 48,000 to 90,000, everybody gets the 1,080. As you get above 90,000, we start to take it away. So it's complicated. You it have is. a little bit and we add to it. You get to a plateau, a mesa, you know, a table-shaped table mountain, and then we start to drop off again, and so we start to take it away for every incremental dollar earned. And at 126000 it will drop out altogether. So The actual offset itself will be processed by software systems and the ATO. No just, one has to think about it. It's automated, it. yeah. But if you're trying to do some planning, if you're trying to work out what's my marginal rate, how much tax am I going to pay, if it's I get a pay rise... It's not worth the effort, Rob. Oh, we're talking a few hundred here, aren't we? I'm not sure that that energy put into planning around those is not going to be worth the exercise. Yeah, I agree with you. So what did uh, Bill Shorten say last night in his budget in reply? Well, the Labor want to have a point of difference, obviously, going to an election, and this will be one of the major battlegrounds during the election campaign, that we will have the tax on offer. So my comment is Bill Shorten said to Josh Frydenberg, I see your tax cut, I'll raise it. And so the people under a 40,000 will get a better deal out of Labor. So that 255 will go to 350. What Labor have also said though is that they will not sanction the government's proposed changes beyond 22 and 24. In other words, we don't want to give those above 90,000 any benefit or even above 48,000. So a uh, little bit more on the table for lower income earners. The middle bracket and the higher income earners will miss out and the Labor have said they will not sanction those reforms. So if, if they do get legislated, Labor would undo them. And that's subject to what happens in the Senate. Absolutely, yeah. So this will be interesting to watch. Um, in terms of the uh, back to the budget changes, 
there were some announcements on Monday which actually preceded the budget about superannuation for those aged 65 and 66. Yeah, this week I've been telling people that 67 is the new 65. So current arrangements were that if you're under 65, you can put money into super without even thinking about it. You don't have to satisfy any particular conditions. At 65, though, you had to meet a work test. And the work test generally means you've got 40 hours of gainful employment in a 30-day period at some stage during the income year. Given our age pension qualification age is going to rise, and by 2023 that'll be 67, we'll get there slowly. I think the government's trying to align our super environment with the age pension qualification rules. So the 65-year-olds and the 66-year-olds from 1 July 2020 will be able to put money into super without meeting that work test. So the current rules that sort of stop at 65 will stop at 67. In other words, um, you'll still be able to put money into super without meeting that work test. Now, we've already got some concessions that have been legislated and there's a couple of tweaks to them, but in the year after you last passed the work test, you can top up without meeting a work test. Now, that's already been enacted, but there is a big caveat on it. And the caveat is you have to have a total super balance below 300000 Now, I'm not sure from Josh Frydenberg's release on Monday night whether these new environments with your 65 and 66-year-olds will have that condition. There was I think something it's they not, that that was the yeah, case. And I don't think it will because what I think they're doing is moving the general goalpost. In other words, mm. what were the rules for people less than 65... Okay, we'll now be for the rules for those less than 67. So I think my take on it is that's what we're going to do. So there won't be that requirement to have a total super balance below 300,000 for these 65 and 66-year-olds post 1 July 2020. Yeah, I'd agree. But one of the other major developments for the 65 and 66-year-olds is that they've never been able to access more than $100,000 of non-concessional contributions. And they will get access to the bring forward rule. So again, similar to the rules currently for less than 65-year-olds. Uh, so if you're less than 65, you can put three years' worth at one go. That will also apply from 1 July 2020 for the 65 and 66-year-olds. There were there was another change also in relation to spouse contributions. Yeah, I suppose to even up. Some people, you know, you've worked all your life, you've got a good healthy super balance, maybe your spouse hasn't. So the ability to top up for the spouse. And remember, at 1.6 total super, you are prohibited from putting any more of your own money in. So for spouse contributions, they're elevating the age to 74. So if, you know, if I've maxed out mine, I've got 1.6, I can't put any more in. Maybe my spouse doesn't have enough we can make some spouse contributions. And again, that age will rise from 65 to 74. In the budget and reply last night, Bill Shorten reiterated the opposition's commitment to removing negative gearing or at least limiting it to new housing. He also reiterated their commitment to deny the refundable franking credits, which has been a fairly controversial policy. And uh, across the country, everybody's got a view on this. Mm. When he was explaining this last night, he made the statement that the refund of franking credits that goes back to those with a marginal rate of less than the corporate rate. He said it's not illegal, it's not immoral, it's just not sustainable anymore. Not affordable, yeah. And uh, again, if you go back to the purpose of imputation, it was to eliminate double taxation. So if the company's paid tax on its profits and then distributes those profits after tax, then if it was just taxed like it was prior to 86, you're effectively paying tax twice on the same amount of money. So imputation was introduced to eliminate that double tax. Now we 
made a change in Peter Costello's era to go beyond just eliminating the double taxation and refunding the excess franking credit. So if I can take away my tax bill so that I don't have a tax bill, we went beyond that and you actually get the cash back. Now, if I was a pure economist, I'd say that's a nonsense. It is unsustainable. Um, And it goes beyond the intended purpose of an imputation system. So purely from an economical point of view, I think it makes sense. But we've become so used to it, everyone's factored in their investment decisions, their returns. Um, For example, if I don't have a tax bill and my income is frank dividends, why should I get the cash back? Isn't this a philosophical question? (laughs) If a company pays tax, passes it out as a frank dividend, franking credits attached. If your rate is higher than the corporate rate, I'm talking your personal rate, then obviously there's top-up tax and, mm. and no one disputes that. Howard allowed those on less than the corporate rate to be able to get the refund so that the dividend was effectively taxed at the marginal tax rate of the shareholder. So the philosophical question is, where your shareholder's rate is below that of the company, is the reasoning that it should be taxed once, and that's what imputation ensures that you haven't got double taxation, but taxing it once means taxing it at the corporate rate, or is the philosophical argument that it should be taxed at the shareholder's marginal rate, which is why the refund is allowed to be passed through but by way of that refundable credit? But if I have a tax bill... But somebody paid tax on the dividend originally. Yeah. So the question is, should it be taxed at the corporate rate, or well, we the, just try to levy the tax at the marginal you're rate? you philosophical arguments. You could say, why tax a company at all? Let's treat it as a look-through vehicle which is happening in other jurisdictions like your LLCs in the US and the UK or in New Zealand where you tick the box, look through companies. So you could say, well, we'll tax the profits but only on distribution rather than at the entity level. So we could have that debate in terms of philosophical stances. So um, we've just got too used to it. But they've committed to it. Um, As he said last night in the budget in reply speech, you know, it's not immoral, it's not illegal, it's just not affordable. So start date, if it does proceed, would be 1 July 2019. Yes, if it's still committed to that, whereas the negative gearing and the reduction in the discount capital gain, there's sort of a bit of a tweak and 1 January 2020, which is a shocking day to start any tax reform. What do you think that's going to do to the property market later this year? Are people going to be rushing around buying well, properties to lock them in? Let's not get too excited yet. Let's just see what the election result is. But I think a lot of people are starting to look at Labor's announcements and over a whole raft of tax reform and, and agendas because there's a fair chance in a lot of people's eyes that you know they're going to form government post-election and therefore their agenda will be set. So we could be talking about a budget from the Labor Party somewhere around August, September. Absolutely. Another major measure which was announced in the budget, but again, tweaking an existing policy, is the instant asset write-off. So again, to set the scene for everyone, we've had since the 12th of May 2015, a $20,000 write-off, which was designed to be a temporary measure, a temporary increase from the $1,000 threshold, right through until June 30, 2017. But we've now had uh, two enacted extensions to this, and uh, a third one is about to be enacted as well, extending it to 30 June 18, then 30 June 19, and now this latest round extends it out to June 30, 2020. So... Working our way through this, it's not just an extension to the date. They announced on the 29th of January that they would lift the 20,000 threshold up to 25,000 
and the 25,000 would then be lifted from the 2nd of April budget night up to 30,000. So this particular bill uh, was amended in the Senate on Wednesday. It did get back to the lower house on Thursday, that is yesterday, and was passed. So yeah, as a result... It's true, Parliament, it's true. And, and the Governor-General will endorse and enact the provision. So the bill so. will not lapse. It will be enacted no. prior to the calling of the election. So we are left with small business entities with three different thresholds in the, the 18 at 19 income year. We've got medium-sized businesses able to access the 30,000 write-off between the 2nd of April and June 30, 2020. Your observations on this? I think this is a good policy, but this is getting complicated. It is complicated, and we've got the distinction now between SBE, small business entities, and uh, their ability to get an instant deduction for their purchases of capital assets, depreciable property. The carrot, I suppose, for businesses by Josh Frydenberg is to expand that to a significantly greater reach of small business, so those in excess of 10 mil on an aggregated annual basis, and but below 50. Now, they're not giving them small business concessions per se, they're just saying you can expense your capital purchases. Uh, and that'll go through to 1 July 20. So as you say, in the 19 fiscal year, so our tax season of two th- ending 30 June 19, you, for the small business entities, you've got three different potential capital allowance regimes in terms of outright deductions. For your medium entities, I'll call them mediums, they've got uh, from the 2nd of April, so a couple of months, three months effectively, to make purchases and get their outright deductions. But again, it gets even more complicated because I don't want to get too technical on these um, chats, but you know, for a small business, they might have already made steps to acquire an asset. So it's when it's first used or ready for use after budget night, we go up to 30 grand. Whereas your mediums, that you have to acquire, then install ready for use. So it's a subtle difference, but it, it just adds to the complexity. And, um, you know, if a business person's trying to understand this themselves, they're going to get uh, into difficulties. But we will be putting together a blog that summarises this in a, a more able-to-be-understood form. But it's going to be crucial that uh, taxpayers and their advisors look at the date of acquisition, look at the date that it's first used, and obviously the, uh, the business percentage as well, because that can affect the yeah. proportion of the asset you're claiming. And just one reminder on that, because you're getting an outright tax deduction, you're never claiming the capital out, so it's not a depreciable asset effectively, you've had your deduction. So when you dispose of such an asset, any money you receive goes straight back into assessable income. And I think I've got to keep reminding people of that part of the rules. Agreed. Should this be a permanent feature of our tax system? Well, that's the debate, and letters are already being sent to Josh Frydenberg saying, you know, don't keep extending. You know, the plan as currently would take it back to $1,000 uh, as at 1 July 2020. I don't think anybody that I've spoken to believes that will happen, that they'll keep the elevated um, level of absolute deductions for purchases of capital equipment. And it is important to note that when it reverts to $1,000, as it is currently legislated to do so, that 1000 write-off is only available for small business entities. So yeah, for the medium great. businesses between the 10 and 50 mil, they would not be able to access the $1,000 write-off. No, they'll go that back to their Division 40 and normal claiming their capital rules. allowances over the effective lives of the assets. Exactly. Look, it's obviously a, an effective policy. It's a popular one. The government knows that it works, and that's why they keep extending it. It is, and it's, I suppose you'd argue from an economic point of view, it's to stimulate the economy, but... The reality is the money and the profits for the things we buy 
probably go offshore because we don't make a lot of things anymore. So our depreciable assets are probably being supplied by external suppliers to the nation and so the profits and the money is leaving the country. And look, accountants know this, but it's really good to remind taxpayers of this. There is no point going out and spending $1,000 on an asset so you can get a $300 deduction or a $10,000 asset to get a $3,000 deduction, whatever your figures are. Um, you've still got to outlay the economic cost of it. So seeking it, yeah. a deduction is not got, shouldn't be the driver in this. No, tax should never drive commercial decisions. I mean, what's good for your business? If you need an asset, you need an asset. Buy the asset. If you don't need an asset, the fact that you're going to get a tax deduction for it may not be justify the reason so it might change your timing on it though Um, so if you need an asset and you will have capital expenditure in the future it might bring that capex forward for you so that's probably the only time you i think as a business person you would make those investments you wouldn't just do it for tax reasons Look, it's worth reminding everybody the Senate has wrapped up for the 45th Parliament, so there'll be no further Senate sitting days prior to the election. At this stage, the House of Reps is scheduled to sit for four days next week, but I am wholly expecting that the election writs are going to be issued uh, prior to that occurring, so more than likely next week's parliamentary sittings will be cancelled. I think I haven't checked the Hansard, Robin, you may have, but there were certainly a number of valedictory speeches by members of Parliament who are not expected to return and have already made that decision they won't stand at the next election. So if they've already been making their final hurrahs, then you think that the House won't sit next week. I don't expect it will. So that means we'll move into election mode, uh, caretaker mode, of course, more formally for the government, where no new policies are announced by way of implementation. They can, of course, announce their uh, campaign policies. And all current bills not dealt with will lapse. Absolutely, they will. So the key bills that are going to be prorogued, and it's just worth recapping on these, the SG amnesty will not make it into law. Now, whether they resurrect it, the other side of the election and backdate, very unlikely. So... Employers that have come forward in good faith and thought they were going to get all the benefits of the amnesty. Uh, you will get some of the benefits. You the probably office, had remission of penalties. Yeah, the tax office will not impose Division 7 penalties for those that have willingly come forward. Of course, they cannot allow a tax deduction for those delinquent payments because there's no provision that can allow that. It is still an SG charge a shortfall amount and not deductible. What would you say to those employers that have been holding off, and there are many, in case the amnesty came through or to see what happened, what would you say to those employers well, who have not come forward? They still should come forward. They've done the wrong thing. And it's not them that have been suffered, it's their employees that have been hurt by the failure to make the adequate super contribution. So in my view, they should come forward. Caught up in the same bill, the measure to allow some relief from excess contributions for those that have multiple employers, that measure will also lapse with the calling of the election. I am not going to uh, hide my satisfaction on this next measure, Neil, the uh, main residence exemption for foreign residents. You've certainly been rattling the sabre, Robin, over the journey with a number of other commentators around the country and including our expat community. So I think you mentioned um, the Assistant Treasurer's comments that uh, some things get announced and uh, they just never actually see the light of day. This one may be one of those. So the fact that it hasn't got through and it wasn't even put up in the Senate, perhaps there's a good indication that this one will disappear very quietly Mm. we don't expect that to uh, be resurrected and look if it is there'll be a fresh round of consultation so they're probably the key measures look i'm probably also worth the mention the three-year audit period for (laughs) self-managed funds we haven't heard a peep on that one that's not happening 
the increasing your self-managed fund members' maximum numbers from four to six. was removed from a piece of law this week. Yes, and it was. The bill was passed, but that was removed from it. So I'm not sure what the agenda there or whether they had some murmurings from the crossbenchers that they would not support that measure and that could have delayed other um, super reforms. I shall have a read of the hand side to find out what happened yeah. there. So the, yes, the increasing SMSF membership to fewer, where it currently in the law says fewer than five, changing that to say fewer than seven is not proceeding at this stage. Uh, I think it will in the down the road, but not at this stage. So that's really the key measures that uh, will be lapsing. Of course, Div 7A hasn't seen the light of day yet. So we head to an election more than likely 11 or 18 May. They're the two dates on offer. It can't be later than the 18th of May and they're out of time now to hold an April election and 4th of May, too close to Easter. So beyond that, oh, we... I had been saying 18th, but I think my money would now go on the 11th. Okay. June sittings. There are three weeks scheduled in June. I'm really not expecting we're going to see too much of Parliament in June. I wouldn't have thought so. I wouldn't have thought that with the you know the minor parties rise to prominence and the the way it takes a while to perhaps determine the outcome of some electorates, possible challenges to the uh, candidates' uh, eligibility uh, following our last election, where the High Court was kept very busy. So I think we might not know the actual final outcome of the election for say three to four weeks, which would basically mean Parliament is not going to sit in June. They don't sit in July, 12th of August is the, mm. the next date. So we're into the back half of this year, but really before we see new legislation. Unless a change of government says we need to get on with things and they reconvene Parliament sooner. Which is possible. Yeah. Any final observations? No, just again, I think it was a, a fairly tame affair compared to previous budgets. You know, I go back to 2006 when we had the normal raft of tax changes, but also simpler super, so major superannuation reforms. Even recently with the simpler, fairer and sustainable super changes. So a pretty tame budget week. A safe budget? A very safe, yeah. They were certainly not going to cause any major disruptions to their electoral chances. So we didn't expect anyone to be hit hard. Now, in my times of a, as a youth growing up, you know, smokes, petrol and booze, uh, those days are long gone. Um, well, they were to hit you with the excises and, and extra hikes. Yeah. Wasn't that a moral message? The poor old Aussie battler, you know, is the smoker, the drinker and the driver always used to get slammed on budget night. <laughs> uh, that was never going to happen this time around. Neil, thank you again for joining me on Taxiac. It's uh, been good to revisit uh, the uh, developments of this week. Yeah, thanks, Robin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Taxiac. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. And just to let you know, coming up, we're going to be holding a couple of STP podcasts. One is going to be with John Shepherd, uh, the Assistant Commissioner with the Tax Office, where we're going to have a chat about where STP is and the implementation of all the, uh, the small employers coming on board. And we're also going to be conducting a Q&A Tax Yak episode, which will cover off a number of the questions that were considered as part of our webinar last week on single-touch payroll. We look forward to those episodes in the next few weeks. If you would like to send through questions to us about single-touch payroll, please feel free to email us at 
podcast at taxbanter.com.au and then we can build your questions into our discussion for that particular episode. We look forward to you joining us next time.